And as you're taking your seats, kids, you guys are dismissed to your classes. And you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. Also be in prayer too, because Craig Manson is coming home. That's a praise, but also a prayer uh, for dealing with health issues from home as well. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, as we open your word now, give us wisdom. Help us to take our time through it. This is your word. It is alive and active, and may it do its work in our hearts. Thank you again for the many blessings you give us. And as we walk through this text and once again are amazed at who you are and also amazed at who we are, and a different type of amazement, more of a, a sheer shock of who we are compared to who you are. So, Dear Holy Father, help us to know you better. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of times in life where there's things that are right in front of us and we use them every day and we don't realize what they're there for. And so sometimes as we're using them, we don't even know why we're using them. And all of a sudden you're confronted with the facts of them and you go, oh, I never knew that that's what that meant. Well, one of them, and I enjoy things like this, one of them is if you're ever mailing an envelope or if you're interacting with your credit card and they want to try to figure out who you are, right, they will ask for your zip code. All right, just to verify your zip code. And we use the word, you know, we go, oh, that's my zip code. Sometimes we don't even know what the word zip code stands for, right? And so we're just going to explain that to you real quick. Now you'll go, oh, I understand the value of it. Well, in 1963, they started the zip code process, and it was the goal of the zip code was to help sort mail faster. I guess mail was getting so much of a burden, they needed to make it go faster. And so they came up with a plan called the Zoning Improvement Plan, and named it zip, as in zip code. Now, you, if you have your zip code and you're thinking about it right now, the first two digits are important. They tell you what part of the country to send the mail to. The second two digits tell you which central post office it is sent to. So what part of the country and then which major post office. And then from there, the last two digits are your local post office that it gets sent out to. So like the last two digits would be my mail gets sent over to Spencer. And that's why my last two digits of my zip code are going to be different than yours if you're here in Stratford, because yours goes to Stratford. And you go, well, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Well, you may think that's, that has no value of it. Try not putting a zip code on a mail, and guess what will happen? It doesn't go anywhere, because they can't read, like, Stratford, Wisconsin. That just throws them, because all they look at anymore is the zip code, and zip, there it goes, right? And... We interact with these all the time, but we don't even realize, and they start on the East Coast moving West. Numbers, orders, and how they function. And you sit there and go, thanks, that's really interesting, but now when you write your zip code down next, you'll go, hey, wait a minute, there's more to this than that, and I'm sure even in your own mind you're wondering all the different zip codes where you lived and you know how they played and everything else. With that all being said, we're going to talk about something that we see almost on a yearly basis, but many times we don't realize the significance of what we're about ready to see. So let's look in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. Genesis 9, 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I established 
my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many has come out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I will make between you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. We're going to see today, the title of the sermon is called the Noahic Covenant. And you're going to say, well, this covenant is not necessarily with Noah. It's with Noah and all his descendants and animals and everything else. But biblically speaking, they call it the Noahic Covenant. And so as we're looking at this passage of Scripture that talks about the Noahic Covenant, we have to pause and ask ourselves, like, what are covenants? All right, the word covenant is in the Bible. Some of you may not even run into a covenant until you get married, and they call it the marriage covenant that you're going through. But covenants in the Bible is, if you want to summarize it as this, covenants carry the redemptive plan of God forward. And as they carry the redemptive plan of God forward, and many of these reveal to us even more depth of God's beautiful plan to redeem. And so if you want to call it, they're like pillars in the, in the ground that are placed there, that as we see them, they move the redemptive plan even greater forward, explaining even more of who God is. And if you want to call it, they string the Bible together from one covenant to the next. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. This is the God of the Bible. He makes covenants. If He said it, it will happen because he always keeps his word. So when we think about the definition of a covenant, a covenant is pretty simple. It's about as easy of definition as you can come up with to the point where we didn't even include it in the notes because it's this basic. A covenant is an arrangement between two or more parties. All right, so in order to have a covenant, guess what you need to have? Someone else to have a covenant with. All right, it's an arrangement. And we go, so let's, we have to dig into this arrangement a little bit more, all right? Because you're going to go, hopefully your marriage is a little bit more than just an arrangement that you've made for the rest of your life. There's some depth to it, all right? Depending on the level of the covenant that is there. But before we even get into this, though, there's something that I just, I, I, we just need to stop and mention this. It's just interesting in the world we live in that sadly, we are willing to make covenants with so many things except for one thing that's really important. I'll give you an example of this. If you buy a home, you make a covenant with a bank that you will be, be their slave until you pay them back three or four times the amount that you borrowed from them thanks to interest. And so you sign more your name and more times than you probably ever wrote it in your life when you get a thing called a mortgage. Then if you work for someone, you sign in a contract of employee or employee, right? And you sign away your time. If you're a salary employee, you're just a glorified servant that you just do whatever they tell you to do whenever they want them to do it, and they don't give you any more money the harder you work. You just are supposed to feel more appreciated, right? And so we sign her away at that. And then if you want to be part of a club, we're quick to willing to sign that. 
But it's interesting, sadly, most of us then are more reluctant to join a church or join something else because, well, I don't know if I really need to be that. Just me showing up at church isn't that enough. And I would go, well, why are you willing to do it with so many other people, but you're not willing to do it with a group of believers who all believe the same thing? Just a little side note. So let's look at the elements of a biblical covenant. The elements of a biblical covenant are huge. So obviously we said a covenant is an arrangement between two or more parties. We need to look at the elements of it. So who are the parties involved in this covenant here? It is God, and you'll see as we've read it, it's God and humanity and every living thing. And every living thing that will continue to live after the living things that are alive at the time of the covenant die. All right, so you literally have everything that is alive and all of Noah's descendants and everything else. So if you're alive on the earth, this covenant is with you, man as well as animal. Now, it's interesting, in covenants, there are conditional covenants, and then there are unconditional covenants in the Bible. A conditional covenant, and now without trying to, is a covenant that is based on a condition, all right? And that cleared it up, right? I'll give you an example of a biblical covenant that is based on a condition. When God makes the covenant with Moses and Israel about the promised land, God basically says to Moses, you guys obey, you're in the land. If you disobey, you are out of the land. All right, and so this covenant that was made there, the conditions of it, there was conditions in that covenant. Disobedience, removal from the land, obedience, you stay in the land. So now we look at the Noahic covenant and wonder, are there conditions in the Noahic covenant? And guess who you're going to find? There aren't any conditions. This would be called an unconditional. Because God is saying he will never destroy the world again in spite of what man's going to do. Because notice what we see here. Remember when God gives the creative, the creative mandate again to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to Noah, right? He says this to Noah again like he said to Adam, but he adds something to Noah that he did not give in Adam's day when Adam was given the creation covenant. God says to Noah, and let me explain something to you. You guys are going to be killing each other, and here's corporal punishment to deal when mankind is attacking and killing one another. All right, so we see here, and what also we saw before that was man is continual evil from his youth. And how's man going to play out this continual evil? They're going to try to kill each other and try to hurt each other and try to do all these other things to each other. And God is saying, in spite of who you are, I will never destroy the earth again. So we see this as an unconditional. Also, we're going to see the promise of this covenant. The promise is never judge man's sin by a worldwide flood. Man's sin will be judged, but God will not judge man's sin by destroying the world again by a flood. And then not only do we have the parties involved, not only do we have the conditions of the covenant, not only do we have the promise of the covenant, there's going to be now a sign of this covenant. The sign is the rainbow that God places in the sky. All right, so that was just the intro into this. So now let's dive into the text. Because as we read this, there are some times, and I would pray to you as a church member, as you are reading the Bible, there are times you need to stop and just let the Word of God, what did I just read, impact you. All right, so here we go in verse 9. Point number one is God makes a covenant with everything that is on earth. So here we go again, verse 9. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and every living thing that is on the earth. And then just in case if you needed it to be summarized again in verse 17 god said to noah this is the sign of the covenant that i have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth real quick here 
I'll give you an easy answer, and the answer is not anywhere in the text. Where is Noah speaking in this text? Nowhere. All right, this is God, the initiator, making the covenant. Noah, because he is a sinner in need of a Savior, has no grounds to come to a holy God and say, hey God, let's talk about this sin thing. How about we do it this way? Why don't you make a promise, God, to never destroy us again? No, because Noah is a sinner in need of God's continual forgiveness because Noah has sinned and God is holy. And this is where we see this. Again, this is where we need to pause because sometimes people say, well, the gospel didn't show up until... Jesus came and then he started sharing the gospel and then Paul took it. I would argue the gospel showed up at Genesis 1-1 and has been going all the way through because here's what we see in the gospel is this. God the initiator, God the going after sinful man, saying, I will be gracious to you. These are the elements of the gospel. Now, there are times that the gospel is not as clearly seen in some passages, and then there's other moments where it's just in your face, all right? I would argue this is an in-your-face moment because we have to remind ourselves again, Noah and his children are sinful people. And you just don't know, next Sunday we're going to be talking about the struggles that they've got. And so the text again, man is evil, God is good. All right, all throughout Scripture. And bad, God good. All right, it's about as simple as you can make it. It's like Tarzan, me, Jane, you, Tarzan, or whatever. Me, Tarzan, you, Jane. Dyslexia at its best. And so as we, as we walk through these things, these are the things that we sit there and go, this is the Bible message over and over and over again. Man deserves judgment. God is giving a time of long-suffering and grace. And notice God is saying, I'm doing it in spite of y'all. There's my little southern moment for the moment there. And it's interesting, God sees man's heart, and he is moved to act. Why is God this way? Because we know that man will not desire to come to God on his own. Literally, what did we just celebrate at Christmas? Christ doing what? Becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. This is where the prophets of old, and this is where Matthew and Mark and Luke would say over again, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did not say that which was lost, come find me. He said, I am the initiator, I am going to seek and to save that which is lost. Because Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2.14. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, there's a very, it was, it's a verse that cuts right to the pride of man. Verse. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Meaning, literally is this, the unsaved person does not see the things of God and says, wow, that's wonderful. That's why God does not say, figure it out, come and find me, or hey, figure it out, I'll meet you halfway. God is the initiator, he is the one who comes, and he is the one that goes after that which is lost. That is why all glory and praise comes to him and him alone. That's why as we see this playing out here back in Genesis 9, God is the one that is making it. Nowhere do we see Noah saying, hey, let's just let's cut a deal halfway. Because Noah is a sinner in need of a Savior. God is the initiator. And one of my more favorite uh, Christian fiction, if you want to call it that way, or just fiction books, uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a phenomenal line that is interesting because as children are walking in the land where it's always winter and never Christmas, which is basically between now and spring in Wisconsin, all right? And we have this perpetual winter that is locked in. 
and the witch's evil spell, if you want to have it, has been grasped in, into the place, and no one can do anything about it. It just stays cold, and it just stays cold. And as these kids are walking around, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, in their little den there, have a comment, and they say, Aslan is on the move. And as Aslan, the lion, is symbolizing Christ, goes, where he goes, spring has to come, because he is the initiator. If Aslan would not have been on the move, nothing would have happened. Aslan is on the move because God is the initiator of it, he is the sustainer of it, and he's the keeper of it. That is why our only moment, as I was reading this, where God says, I'm establishing my covenant with you, and I was reading the text over and over again, I was struck by how many times God has said, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do, in spite of all of you. Because the given says, Noah's sitting there saying, wow, I don't deserve any of this. This is why the gospel message is incredibly clear. We run to him in repentance. Because we go to him in repentance, understanding that I cannot save myself. Noah is not saying, hey God, we got this. Me and my boys, we're going to be perfect and we're never going to sin again. All right? They can't even survive a vineyard all right, without falling into depravity. All right? And so what we're seeing around them is a continual sin all around them, and Noah's understanding this, and God is understanding this too, because he sees man's wicked heart, and God says, I am going to be the initiator, I am going to be the actor, I am going to do this, because you can't do it on your own. That is why the gospel truth is, run to him. Run to him and him alone. I was struck by this as I was working through this text. I forget what page it is in your songbook, but there's a song called Rock of Ages. I should beforehand. If one of you want to find the Rock of Ages in your hymn book and shout it out, feel free. We can do a little participation. So if you can look in your hymn books to find the Rock of Ages, um, we're going to work through this incredibly powerful song. And first one to it, three what? 388? Okay. 388, according to my wife. Thank you, dear, for being a great helper. All right, listen to these words, and we're just going to walk ourselves through it. Rock of ages, clep for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. What we see here is a man that is, or a person who has come to themselves and they said, I need to hide myself in God. I can't stand on my own. Try standing on your own before a holy God. And the answer is, good luck, you won't. Even men whom God had called and set apart, when they stand before God, grovel in the ground saying, whoa, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And he's saying, so what does he cry out? While I'm hidden in this cleft of this rock, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, meaning I can't save myself, I need your atoning work on me to cure me from two things. And notice what are the two things that the blood of Christ needs to cure him from. From the wrath of God, because he understands he deserves what? The wrath of God, because he is a sinner. And he understands the wrath of God is on him, saved from wrath, and then what also to do? Make him pure. Because he couldn't make himself pure on his own, he's also standing before a holy God, and the wrath of God is being poured out on him, and he says, hide me in that. May your atoning work hide me in this. And then he wants to just to make sure that we're clear on this. Notice what he says. Not the labors of my hand could fulfill the law's demand. 
The law demands perfection. And guess what? Everyone who looks and understands perfection is going to stand before the law of God. One of the most beautiful things of the law of God tells you, you can't do it. Good try. Try again, you can't. Could my zeal no rest but no? Meaning like, could I really, really, really be as zealous as possible to make myself good enough to stand before God? And the answer is, nope. Could my tears, what if I just cry it out? And the answer is, Nope. All for sin I could not atone. And what's his only answer? Thou must save and you alone. Now you, it's almost as if he's going before the throne, the cross, and here's what he's seeing when he stands at the cross. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, because there's nowhere else to go. Naked I am. He's literally saying, I'm naked. You are the one that's going to give me dress. I'm helpless. You are the one that's going to give me grace. Foul, I fly to this fountain. Because he's crying out, wash me, Savior, or I will make it on my own. Is that what does he say? No, wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the attitude of us as we read this passage saying, without the grace of God, mankind would die all the time. The moment they rebel against their Savior, which was going, You're, guess what? From youth, this is happening. And then as we wrap it up, which every fourth verse of every song likes to end with when we die, right? This is the normal poetry of the hymns. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall clothe in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne. Now, this rhymes so well that we pause. He's dying, and he gets before the judgment seat of God. And what is his cry even then? Not, look how great I am as I stand before the judgment seat. When he's standing before a holy and righteous God, the answer is, rock of ages cleft from me, let me hide myself even in thee when I stand before a holy God. That is why we must be saved and clothed in his righteousness and his righteousness alone. Now, as we bring our minds and our hearts back to this text, this is the attitude we should have when we read texts like this. Now, there's two things I want to be careful. When I'm talking about grace, there are two types of grace in the Bible. All right, there's common grace and there's salvific grace. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Common grace is the idea that sustains your life and you are not dead when you rebel against God. Now, salvific grace is the grace given at the moment of salvation for those who repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. So the grace that man is getting now, that the moment they sin, they are not consumed, is not saving them. It is saving them from not dying at this moment, but they must place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about God's common grace on mankind, we're talking about the grace that it rains on this guy's farm and it rains on that guy's farm, and God is gracious. We're talking about salvific grace is the grace when a person comes to the place of repentance and faith in Christ where they receive God's salvific grace, saving them and redeeming them. So point number two, though, not only do we see God the initiator, point number two is God sets his bow in the sky. And you go, boy, that sounds kind of like, well, wow, that's, that's the point, and I'm going, it's a huge point. It's interesting, though, just a little side note, it's interesting, the word bow in this is not necessarily the rainbow. It's a Hebrew word, actually, for a, the battle bow, the bow that is used when you're out hunting. And a battle bow, obviously, is a weapon of death and destruction. Habakkuk 3.9 talks about how God makes his bow bare, ready for action. And so in a, in a way that is just, just found this interesting, 
if you want to make if you want to take this concept and just explore it for a little bit so we have during the flood god the warrior a just and righteous warrior using his bow of wrath on the earth to bring judgment on the wickedness and sinfulness of sin. And what do we see here happening? What does he do with the bow? He places in the sky as a warrior setting the bow down. This will not be used again in this way. Judgment is coming in other ways, but not again in this way. It's interesting, at times when I've been talking to unbelievers, in my mind I've said, wouldn't it be great if God would just like write the gospel in the sky that we could just see, just go outside and take a look at it, and there it would be, right? And in my mind, like, it would be really great. And then I've been working through Genesis here, and he's done it quite a bit. We just, all you write down your zip codes and have no idea what you're zipping about, right? And now we come over here and you go, look at the sky. So let's turn real quick back to Genesis chapter 1 and see what, how he has written his plan in the sky. Genesis 1, 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens that separate from day and night, and let, there be, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. So as the sun rises and the sun sets, as it moves slowly from one side of the the sky to the other, as you start noticing it's getting lighter, what are these supposed to remind us of? God the Creator. All right, then when we get down even through and we go to Genesis chapter 8 as we read, and literally as we see the seasons come and go when the flood subsides, in Genesis chapter 8, 22. When the sun and the moon show us that it is summer and that it is winter and the seasons are marked and we have a 24-hour day period that comes and goes, all of these are signs for us to remind ourselves not only is God the creator, that God is the sustainer of all things. And not only this, we have a time now when it rains of another reminder. Because if we were thinking biblically... When all of a sudden the clouds darken and it starts to rain, there would be a question in our mind. Is God coming to destroy the earth again because the earth deserves it? And what does God remind us of as the rain passes? We see that rainbow in the sky. It's a reminder of God's grace towards sinful man. I would have to say, living out here and where we live now, it's wide open area. Thank the Lord for the wonderful wind we get. But when the wind is not windy, one of the things we get to see is incredible rainbows that we didn't get to see before when we lived in town and we saw trees. We get to see, and it's almost a guarantee, Lord willing, almost every year you at least get to see one or two here and people take pictures of them and that's really neat and we try to find the end of them because you think there's a pot of gold there and all the other things that go into it with the rainbow, and we just say, oh, that's kind of neat, but we don't really stop and pause and literally say, God is screaming at us right now. What is he yelling at us? In a, in a positive way, yelling, all right? Not like how we like to yell at our kids. But he's yelling at us with as loud of a voice as he possibly can look. This is a reminder of something. So let's look at again at the text and notice what it says. 
In verse 13, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature and the waters. And he says, the bow is in the cloud. Verse 16, I will see it and remember my everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Notice how long this covenant is. The covenant is what? Everlasting, that he will never destroy again by flood, by water. Point three, God remembers his promise. God places in the sky a reminder of His promise not to destroy the world with water. Now, I want to be clear here. God is not like us. God does not need visual reminders just in case if He forgets. All right? This is not God tying a string around His finger so every time He sees it, He remembers. All right? No, He is not like us. Uh, the closest I can get to my mind of going like, all right, so I wear a wedding ring. All right, so it is not a reminder to me that I'm married. This, there's this lady that keeps following me everywhere we go that reminds me, all right, that, oh, there she is again. All right, so if I lose this, is, am I, are you going to say, Tim, are you going to forget you're married? And go, go, no, because, like, there she is again, all right? And so these things, this is the closest I can get to it, but also to, biblically speaking, God speaks this way in covenant language. The normal covenant language of the Bible is God says, I'm going to do this as a reminder, but remember this, God never forgets His promises. Man forgets all the time. We do these as a symbol, but let's be honest, if this is the only way you remember if you're married or not, you've got some major problems, all right? Like, major, major problems, all right? God never forgets His promises. God is faithful to all that He has promised. And I want to pause here because a lot of times we forget. I want to help you out a real, real big fact in life. History did not start the day you were born. Okay, let's throw that out to you. All right, you may think that. All right, you may think that, you know, nothing happened beyond your little world that you live in. But I want to pause. And, and as we were singing the song, Christ is short and steady anchor, this just thought came to me like, I got to write this down because I think we need to think through this. So God, back in Noah's day, says, I am never going to destroy the earth again because of flood, and I'm going to not deal with man's sin until the cross that is going to be taking place. Think about how much sin took place between that time and when Christ came, and even the time afterwards that is going on where God is sitting there not destroying the earth because why? He has made a promise. And what does the world love to say? Well, how could God be good if there's so much evil in this world? And what does Genesis tell us? He is good because you deserve incredible punishment right now. But what is God being? Gracious. And you're saying his graciousness is a reason not to believe in him because he should be doing something with evil. And you said he did in his son and he will when he returns. And so I want to repeat myself because it's good to repeat yourself. And it's really, really good to repeat yourself. The rainbow that is placed in the sky is a reminder of these two things. And here's the thing we need to see. When we see a rainbow in the sky, we need to remember these two things. And we need to remember them. All right, these are things you don't just go, oh, that's really cool. Let me get my picture and my, you know, my camera and everything else about it and post it online. Here's what you need to remember. Well, the moment you see that is you deserve God's wrath because of how sinful you are. And then the, on the right at that same time, we say God is incredibly gracious for not giving you what you deserve. Because what does the rainbow remind us of? 
You're a bunch of lousy sinners. We all are. But God is a gracious and good God. Saying all of that, but isn't it incredibly ironic that the sign of grace instead of punishment is a sign that has been adopted, sadly, in our day and age by a group of sinners who are rebelling not only against God's design for marriage, but their design for who they are, their design of gender and everything else. Let's rebel against everything we can. And they've adopted a symbol of you deserve the wrath of God, but God is giving you grace as their symbol. And you would go, do you only understand what you're doing? Because you are rebelling against God, and you've adopted a, the sign of the rainbow as one that's saying we deserve the wrath of God, but He's being gracious as our symbol. And you're going to say, hmm, the irony is deep, isn't it? But now, before we go around looking down our noses at rebellious people, may we remember we are the same. But by the grace of God would go us. Because it's easy to look at other people and see how sinful they are. And our prayer as we read passages of Scripture like this should be, Lord, open our eyes to see that my life has been one that is filled with grace instead of judgment. Even as we share the gospel, we reminded ourselves over and over again, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So we, may we patiently call those struggling in sin to find their identity and rest in Him and Him alone. Because it's very, evil to, it's very easy to look around and see the evil in the world and just go, oh, that's not, not as bad as them. But when we see the passage of Scripture like this, we're reminded that God is the initiator making the covenant with man because you cannot, nor do you have the ability to make a covenant with God. He has to be the initiator because you would never find Him if He did not come after you. So when we look at the question again, what did we learn today? Here's what we need to first do. Never take the patience and long-suffering and graciousness of God for granted. May we never do that. May we fall on our knees continually saying, God, without you, we would be nothing. Help. And may we reflect then that patience and long-suffering grace with others in our lives because it is very easy to sit here and remind ourselves of how much we've been redeemed from and then turn around and be just those jerks to everybody else instead of being gracious and loving and kind like Christ has been gracious and loving and kind with us. Because again, when we see that rainbow in the clouds, we are reminded again, you deserve judgment, but God is gracious. So many times we see things that are all around us, and we are so quick to just move on. We're so quick to go, oh, that was cool, did you see the rainbow? Yeah, it lasted a couple of minutes. Or hey, that was a full rainbow. Or anything else like that, we'll talk about it. Or at times, too, you're, we're almost... Oh, you almost look at the rainbow in our culture and sometimes you're like, I, I don't even want to talk about it. Just, it's just, here we go, June again, and we're going to get pounded by all of this instead of saying, may we see the beauty and glory of God through it all. Because even what sinful man will use to try to claim for themselves, we know what the Bible teaches. And we don't need to run in fear. 
I think that's a phenomenal way of going, can I explain to you where that rainbow came from? What the rainbow came from is a group of people that understands that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and God is gracious, not going to destroy us from our sins. It's almost as if they're giving us an opportunity to share the great gospel truth right in front of us. But also we need to remind ourselves that as well. Because we are quick to hold and count everybody else's infractions against us. And what is God showing us here? I'm going to be gracious instead of pouring out my wrath on you because my son will take it one day. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, thank you. It is by your grace and your grace alone that we stand. May this be the fuel that, that drives us to understand that we need to be kind and gracious to a lost and dying world and call them to repentance. Call them to live a life that is worthy before you, knowing that it is only done by your spirit's strength. And so may as the song we walk down through, thank you that your, that your blood handled both, saves us from wrath and makes us pure. Thank you that you are the one that we look to. Help us now. In your son's name we pray. Amen.